This is a podcast from Seven Vineyard. Good morning, everyone. Uh, well, I am picking up our box set series called Emotionally Healthy Church. I feel very lucky that we have three box sets on the go at the moment. Dan's box set called Mending the Divides and the new box set that Mal started uh, last uh, week last Sunday called Modern Family. Three box sets in one. It's a bit like the way we watch TV, isn't it? So there's something going on on BBC, something on Netflix, perhaps something on Disney Plus as well. And I hope this works for you. The reality is though, that these, um, these current three box sets are all part of our goal to build back better um, after the pandemic. And of course the pandemic is still going on to some extent. Uh, and it has been a major moment in all of our lives. And uh, I, I've come across so many people. I don't think I've come across someone that doesn't want to live differently as a result of their experience of lockdown over the past 15 months. And uh, yeah, uh, we have all had time to review uh, the way we live and what you know what we want our lives to look like and I think that's true for us as a church as well so in this episode I want to look at how we present ourselves to the world now I don't know about you but I really like to be in control of my life I like to be in control of my emotions I like to be in control of my time um, uh, I like to be able to choose who I want to spend time with um, we live in a culture that likes to be in control um, we can control the temperature in every room in our house. We can control the temperature in every compartment of our cars. We can control the treble, the bass uh, on our music. Uh, we can control pretty much everything. We could go on and on. And of course, as a culture, I think we're addicted to this. I don't know if you'd agree. Um, I, I, and I think the reason for that is, is because when we are in control, when we're in control, then we feel strong and we feel powerful and we feel potent. But the truth is, of course, we can't always be in control. And the Bible seems to indicate that there are some of the most incredible ways that we experience life with God is not when we are strong and when we are comfortable uh, and when we are safe and when we are clear on our thinking, but actually it's when we are weak, it's when we're broken, it's when we're suffering, it's sometimes when we're confused. Now, if we go right back to the uh, creation myth that was written by Moses in what we call Genesis, the first book of the Bible, we see Moses establishing a theology of weakness that runs right through the Bible uh, because it is at the heart of the relationship between God and humanity. So Moses personifies humanity in these two characters we know as Adam and Eve, and he describes how Adam and Eve wreck their intimate relationship with God. And despite this... God nevertheless lovingly pursues them and makes a way for them to be restored to relationship with him and, importantly, with one another. He provides them with clothes which metaphorically cover their shame and he promises that one day he will overcome the serpent, which is the ancient sort of uh, metaphor for evil, um, whose lies they have believed that one day he will overcome uh, that evil as well. So this is Moses' understanding. He's bringing... He's bringing uh, understanding to the way in which his contemporaries understood God within the context of all the other creation myths that existed at that time. And what Moses does is describes how all of life from that point forwards will be characterised as painful, difficult and frustrating. And, and Moses breaks down this curse uh, into two primary areas, our relationships in chapter 3 of Genesis uh, verse 16 and our work in chapter 3 verse 17 to 19. Relationships will now be marked uh, according to Moses by pain 
and misunderstanding. We will be disappointed with people in our marriages, in our families, in our workplaces, in our neighbourhoods, in our communities. Uh, intimacy will be replaced with manipulation, power struggles, put-downs, seductions, defensiveness and the withholding of relationship. Loneliness will be rife. This is the nature of the curse that Moses describes in Genesis. Uh, we may have been built to engage the earth uh, and to work, but now frustration and failure will be our lot, according to Moses. In essence, the ground will be hard. Thorns and thistles will mark our work. We may reach goals, we may accomplish things, but we'll never feel completely satisfied. A sense of restlessness and incompleteness will always accompany our work on earth. Moses is looking back, of course, retrospectively, um, uh, and he could see the outworking of this curse clearly in uh, Egyptian and Jewish society in which he lived, just as we can see it today in 21st century uh, Britain. But he also perceived a purpose to that, pur to, to that curse. I reckon he was probably an optimist, a glass half full person. He could see purpose in suffering and hardship. He observed that in the midst of suffering, some people reached out to God uh, for help and he saw that purpose if, in suffering and hardship. And, and Jesus also uh, picks up on this theology of weakness, um, perhaps most famously um, in the story that he told about the prodigal son. Uh, you may have seen Rembrandt's famous painting, The Return of the Prodigal Son, and it shows the younger son kneeling, resting his head on his father's chest. He's, he's got no hair, he's seemingly exhausted and emaciated, he's without his cloak and wearing only one tattered shoe, and he looks dishevelled. He is a picture of a life that's been broken. Now, according to the story that Jesus told, the younger son had previously demanded um, his percentage of the estate, one third of the estate, and then he ran away from home. And in traditional Middle Eastern culture, for a son to ask for his inheritance whilst his father is still alive is akin to saying, Father, I am eager for you to die. I want to live now as if you were dead. So effectively, he shames and disgraces his family, but things go badly for him until he actually ends up tending pigs. Now, Jesus is quite deliberate in the metaphors and the images that he chooses because for his Jewish listeners, um, the younger brother has fallen to the lowest of the low because Jews who touched pigs were four times um, ceremonially unclean as a Jew that visited a prostitute. Uh, finally, the younger son comes to his senses in, uh, as described by Luke in chapter 15, verse 17, and turns back towards home. He gets up, turns around, and as he walks home in shame, his father sees him from a distance and literally sprints to embrace him. And the, the Greek word that Luke uses here is used uh, for sprinting in the athletic games that the Greeks were known for. Uh, the father doesn't stand there tapping his foot going, well, we'll, we'll, we'll see what he has to say. This better be good. Uh, he, he literally sprints and embraces his son, sweeps his, you can just imagine him sweeping his son off his feet and throwing him around uh, with joy and with laughter and with relief. And then, then we see in this story, remember Jesus is telling this story to Jews. Uh, this boy is the lowest of the low. He's, he's shamed his whole family, including his father. He's, 
he's treated his family terribly. And what does he do? Jesus describes the father kissing his son. Now remember, Jesus is telling the Jews a story about what God is like, what their God is like. No other religion describes God in such terms as a loving father. He reinstates his son's position of authority, strips off the old, torn, foul-smelling clothes and places the best clothes on him and gives him a signet ring which signifies his legal authority within the family and, and puts shoes on him um, which indicate that he's a free man in the household. And then the father throws an incredibly lavish party with music and dancing and you know, as I said, that this message is so powerful because Jesus is describing to his fellow Jews what God is like. God is not this distant, angry, um, vindictive, um, impersonal force. Jesus says God is like your father and you are like his child. Now, in, if you look at Rembrandt's picture, which hopefully you can see right now, um, uh, on the right hand side of the painting is the older son. Uh, this is the, 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 the man's older son. And he's a complete contrast to the weak and broken younger son. He's well clothed in gold embroidered garments like his father. He stood there with a, a judgmental look on his face. He looks annoyed. He's looking down on his father's lavish reception of his youngest son who has so disgraced the family and squandered the family's fortune. And yet he is more lost than the younger son. Why? Because he cannot see his own lostness. His respectability and morality uh, have blinded him. He's like so many religious people who think they're in with God because they're moral and they're upright. Well, they couldn't be further from God. He's living with the Father and yet he is estranged from the Father. His response to the lavish love of the Father for the younger son is all these years, I've been slaving for you and you've just done this. The older son doesn't see the relationship with God like that between a father and son, but rather between that of a lord and a slave. And isn't that so often the case uh, that religion does that to us? Jesus shares the theology that Moses had, the theology of weakness that Moses had. He's essentially saying it is only in weakness and uh, vulnerability do we actually find it possible to come near to God? The Apostle Paul uh, writes about this really clearly um, in all of his letters, but particularly in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 5 to 10. This is his second letter to the people living in Corinth. He says, I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain, so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say, or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in my weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul is saying that there's something about weakness that reveals the grace of God more than when we are strong. 
Now let's consider who's saying this, because this is Paul we're talking about here, the Apostle Paul, and historians would consider Paul to be more influential in the course of Christianity than Jesus. Um, Paul travels all over Southern Europe and spreads this new movement. He establishes 21 churches around the Mediterranean, and uh, these churches become the foundation stone of Western civilization. In fact, arguably global civilization. Yet this man who goes through shipwrecks, is bitten by snakes, is being uh, to within an inch of his life several times, says that when he is weak, then he is strong. Now, scholars aren't exactly clear about what the thorn in the flesh means. Some, thinks it's a, some think it's a physical condition, um, but I wonder actually whether actually it's more likely to be that he just feels insecure. And we see Paul talking about being insecure um, in a number of his letters that uh, he felt he felt really concerned about um, what other people thought about him, particularly in his early letters. Um, he is um, feels like he's competing against other apostles, super apostles, he calls them, I think, in the first letter to Corinth. Um, he, this insecurity seems to torture him. Um, it's like he's always aware of, like, how weak he is. He, he, he describes himself as someone who can't speak properly. You know, this is, this is a man that travelled around the Mediterranean preaching about Jesus Christ. You know, it, it, it's quite remarkable, this sense of insecurity that he had, this sense of awareness that no matter how successful he is, he's always aware that there is someone else who's more attractive, more uh, interesting than he is. And, and, and this kind of insecurity kind of tortures him. And so maybe that, maybe that's the thorn in his side. It's this mental torture. And, um, and God says, actually, Paul, I'm not going to remove that. That's what Paul believed about himself. I knew he believed that God had said to him, I'm not going to remove that. Uh, that there's something about that experience of weakness, uh, that pain that is going to force Paul back to God on every occasion that he feels it. This, I think, is one of the reasons why I love the Bible. Um, I love the Bible because it's full of real people with real um, real lives, real weaknesses. Uh, leaders, particularly leaders who are insecure, making, who make mistakes, who admit they're a complete mess, right? Um, and, and it's not just what they do on the outside, it's also what's going on on the inside as well, what they're struggling with on the inside. I, I honestly would say to you that you're going to struggle to find any leader in the Bible that's written about in the Bible who, who doesn't confess from time to time that they're just a complete mess, that their life is screwed up. Um, and, and God comes along throughout the Bible and says, ah, yes, this is the type of person I can work with. Now, if this is true, this should change the way we feel about our weaknesses and our failures um, and our insecurities. Pete Scazzaro, in his book, Emotionally Healthy Church, tells this rather cheesy story. It's a story about a man in India who is a water carrier uh, who carries two pots uh, suspended from a pole across his shoulders. And one of the pots is cracked, and so it leaks a bit, and the other pot is just fine. Well, the perfect pot always delivered a full portion of water from the stream to the master's house, but the cracked pot, when the cracked pot arrived at the house, usually it was half empty. So for two years, the wa this water carrier makes the same journey along the same route, backwards and forwards, and the perfect pot becomes proud of its accomplishments but the cracked pot is ashamed of its imperfections and miserable 
that it was unable to fully accomplish uh, what it was purposed for. Finally, one day by the stream, the cracked pot spoke to his owner about the situation. I am ashamed of myself and I want to apologise that I've only been able to deliver half the water to your house. There is a crack in my side which causes the water to leak out. Because of my flaws, you don't get full value from your efforts. The water carrier smiled at him and said, As we return to the master's house, I want you to notice the beautiful flowers along the path. And on that trip from the stream back to the house, the cracked pot looked around. Did you notice that there are flowers only on your side of the path, but not on the other pot's side? The water carrier commented. That's because I have always known about your floor and I took advantage of it. I planted seeds on your side of the path and every day while we passed these spots, you watered them. Now for two years, I've been able to pick those beautiful flowers to decorate the master's table. Without you being just the way you are, I would not have this beauty to grace his house. I think we all know that this is true, right? We all know this is true, but we don't believe it about ourselves. We believe it about other people. Um, the, these are the stories we rally around. I think of all the stories I listen to, the real people's stories you hear about, like on, on TV or on radio, it's, it's the stories of brokenness and weakness that touch the heart, that enable us to connect to one another in that place of vulnerability. If we're not vulnerable, it's very difficult to connect heart to heart. Um, the Bible is full of these stories. I mean, there are, you know, as I said earlier, you, you can't go through the Bible without noticing how many of these leaders have weaknesses and flaws that are, are clearly on display for others to see. And in spite of them, they they still, you know, have relationship with God and are mentioned in the Bible as, as people who stand out in the history of the Jews. Uh, think of this, think, think of um, this list, uh, Noah, well Noah's an alcoholic, um, Moses, Moses has a stammer, he has a short fuse and he murders someone, Abraham and Jacob were compulsive liars, David, King David was an adulterer, a murderer and he abused his power, Solomon, well in today's terms we might consider Solomon and his harem of hundreds of wives and concubines as a sexual predator. Um, Jeremiah was depressed and suicidal. Jonah was suicidal. Elijah was burnt out. Peter was a coward. James and John have an anger problem. John Mark um, deserts Paul. And Timothy has stomach ulcers. These are all people with weaknesses and flaws. And the Bible is full of these people. The truth is that in the Bible, the cracked pots are the only kind of pots there are. There isn't another way to be. I want to apologise to you today because I have not always led this church from a place of weakness and vulnerability. And I have continued and I continue to struggle uh, to lead from a place of weakness and vulnerability. If I'm really honest, it's only probably in the last three or four years uh, that I've mustered the courage to really be honest with myself and uh, with uh, close friends and family and, and actually with you as well, uh, the church that I lead, um, about my own weaknesses and fears. It's only in the last three years that I've embraced vulnerability as a way of life and I'm not even consistent at it. I'll be honest as well and say I think it's only in the last three or four years that I've connected my mental and my emotional health to my spiritual health.
And I am sorry that I've done that. I'm sorry that in the time that I've been leaving this church, I haven't always embraced vulnerability and weakness. And I've certainly not always led from a place of vulnerability and weakness. That's because I think when I was younger, I set in motion patterns of behavior that caused me to pursue uh, success and uh, project confidence and project power and potency rather than weakness and vulnerability. But as we've seen, one, that's not a biblical way to live. But we also know that from the Bible, but also from our own experience of life, that's not a healthy way to live as well. Our emotional health depends on our willingness to become self-aware, to embrace our weaknesses and our flaws, and to be vulnerable with one another and with God. Friends, we are all cracked pots. And um, if you're like me, you may be living in a place of denial over this. You, when I say that, you might say to yourself, do you know what, I'm not sure I agree with you and I don't feel like a cracked pot myself. Well, my journey has always been uh, that I didn't feel like I was a crackpot either, but it's only in the last few years I've started to realise, no, I am. I'm weak and I'm vulnerable. But the gospel of Jesus is, is that that is exactly where the place where God meets us and wants to um, partner with us and, and live with us. And, and he wants us to be in that place because he knows that when we're weak, we are dependent on him. If you like... The beginning of life is to stop pretending and to embrace our weaknesses and our flaws on a daily basis. And that's why it's not just something you do once, it's something you do every day. Now, just by way of example, like what's going on right now in my life? Um, as you've heard this morning, um, Mal and Chriselle um, sense God's leading to a new season of their life, which won't involve their leadership at seven and their involvement at seven. And I have to say, when we, when we um, fully embrace this, Four weeks ago, when we shared, when Malachrysel shared this with us, and a time a timetable for it, uh, like, yeah, we were we were we were rocked. We were we were sad. Um, I was waking at four a.m. every morning, um, literally sweating. I think with a mild panic attack, just as I was contemplating what that might mean for the church. Um, like, um, you know. <laughs> You know what? What does it mean for Mal and Chriselle to leave? Like, not not first of all, just the personal loss because we love them. We love being sharing life with them, doing church together with them. We love all that they bring, their creativity and their energy and their faith, and that's just the impact on our lives. But what about the impact on the rest of the church? Like, are, are lots of other people, you know, going to leave the church because Mal and Chriselle are moving on? And um, you know, what about coming out of pandemic as well at this time? You know, people have been reevaluating their their uh, lives and their plans for living and you know um people have made changes to their lives we've just said goodbye to three couples this week who uh, two of which have retired and moved away alan and mary down to dorset and rob and ruth down to cornwall and um, martin and Gemma moving over to the states for three years and there'll be others as well who will leave the church and of course like for us this is like oh such a personal loss but also what does it mean for the church and these are all um anxieties and worries that you know we're just juggling at the moment now of course we know that god has a plan for all of us we know from our experience of leading church the multiplication of church people leaving to do other things is completely normal and the church continues to flourish 
um, as we all move when we move from Nottingham. Um, uh, you know, we desperately miss them. We know that they missed us, but life continued and the church continued to flourish and grow. And we know that will be the case probably here as well. But the reality is, is the fears and the vulnerabilities that it exposes in us um, causes anxiety and, and worry. We have to take that to God. But I just wanted to be real about that with you today. That's just something that we're dealing with right now. There'll be other things in a few days' time that'll be different, other anxieties, other stresses, other things that worry us, other weaknesses that, that, that are exposed. We want to lead from a place of weakness and we want to be a church that shares our weaknesses because we know that when we are weak, we are more dependent on God. You may have noticed that um, uh, many of the staff team who speak regularly at church, you know, Mal and Chriselle and, and Dan uh, and, and Claire and others have shared openly, perhaps in more vulnerable ways than you've ever heard them share. And that's largely as a result of doing the Emotionally Focused Training Programme that we are uh, really encouraging everyone to participate in. It's through doing that that we've learned to be more vulnerable and have the courage to be more vulnerable. And uh, we, as uh, leaders of this church, as we move forwards, are committed to leading this church from a place of vulnerability and weakness because we believe that it's in that place that we are more dependent on God as a church. And we want to invite you to join us in that journey of embracing vulnerability and weakness in your own life so that you might experience more of God in your day-to-day -day experience. So why don't we just pray together?